The reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's great, God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he, he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body, will also, my body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the high hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Jerusalem be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the, forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accept his message who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Lord, may your authoritative word concerning Jesus Christ bear fruit today. Here's a question and an answer that might surprise you. 
Ken, how do you know that Jesus is Lord? My answer, I don't. The truth is, I don't know. But I believe that he is. In fact, I believe strongly enough to make Jesus' lordship the foundation of my whole life. And considering that we only get one shot at life, to choose Jesus' lordship as the defining reality of my life is not a small thing, and it is not something that I take lightly. But to know, how can we know? Do we know based on our personal experience of Jesus? Now, my experience of Jesus gives me great confidence that my belief is solid, but my personal experience of Jesus is not, I would say, cannot be the ground of my conviction regarding Jesus. Some people have experienced alien abductions. Some people think they're Napoleon. Our experiences are not in themselves trustworthy. And besides, my experience, as is yours, is fickle, isn't it? When we face doubt, we experience the distance or the unreality of God. So why not make that experience the defining conviction of our life? Some people do. We call them atheists or non-Christians. No, my conviction that Jesus is Lord, a conviction that I live and would die for, is not rooted in my experience. It is rooted in something else. And insofar as my experience aligns with that something else, only then do I trust my experience of Jesus. What about you? On what do you base your conviction, your Christian conviction, your belief in the Lordship of Jesus? On what do you ground your confidence? Are you confident? Can you be confident? Or is it just a question of faith? We've just read part of the text from Acts chapter 2 where the Apostle Peter preaches and convinces his audience that Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. And how Peter does that sheds light for us, for me, on why we can be confident that Jesus and his lordship are an appropriate ground and foundation for life and for eternity. The sermon that Peter preached happened on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came on the followers of Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, he had spent 40 days with his followers. Then he left them and ascended into heaven. But only after he had given them instructions to remain in the city of Jerusalem until the promised Spirit of God had been given to them. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so they did. They remained in Jerusalem. They devoted themselves to prayer. And then on the day of the Feast of Pentecost, suddenly, with the sound of wind and with the appearance of fire, the Holy Spirit came on each one of them. And immediately they began to speak in other languages, declaring the wonders of God. And a crowd gathered to see what all the fuss was about. A crowd made up of Jews from all over the Roman Empire 
who had come to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost. And, and as they listened, they were amazed because they heard these Christians, these followers of Jesus, speaking in their own languages. The languages that they spoke from wherever they came from. And they recognized that this was not just a multilingual feat, but a spiritual event. And they asked each other, what does this mean? But in Acts 2.13, we read this. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. See, whenever you respond to the work of God in your life, there will be some people who don't get it and who take shots at you. And they are not just the godless pagans. These in Jerusalem are devout Jews. These are the religious people. These are the worshipers of God who nevertheless do not recognize the presence and the activity of God. So these shots come from in-house. Ah, they're just drunk, essentially. Then Peter stands up and addresses the crowd loudly and clearly. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day or nine o'clock. In other words, it's not yet the time in the Pentecost celebration for the drinking of the wine. So don't just think we had too much too early. And then Peter launches into this sermon, and it is a brilliant sermon. Of course, it's a brilliant sermon. He was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who is not a bad preacher in his own right. And in this sermon that Peter preaches by the Spirit, Peter demonstrates to his Jewish audience conclusively that Jesus is their Messiah, their Lord. And the evidence that he gives is so compelling that 3,000 people are convicted by what they hear, respond to it, and are baptized. And the line of Peter's argument in this whole sermon is essentially this. The Lord God, in his word, said he would pour out his Holy Spirit on people. The Lord God also said that the Christ would rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, and we are witnesses of that. Jesus poured out his spirit, and you are witnesses of that. This is what you're seeing right now. Therefore, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's the whole, that's Peter's sermon in two sentences, three sentences. And what Peter appeals to in this sermon to his Jewish audience are the very things that we rest our confidence in this whole Jesus thing on. Namely, the resurrection of Jesus as prophesied in the Old Testament and bore witness to by the apostles in the New Testament. How do you know that Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492? Answer, you don't. You believe. You've never met Columbus. You were not there in 1492, and you don't know anyone else who was there in 1492. But you believe the written history, the record, the account of Columbus's life and his voyages. And although the record of history generally is riddled with errors and twisted facts, the overwhelming testimony is that in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the Atlantic. We'd be foolish not to believe that this is true. Well, we believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ, and we've believed it so much that we've staked our present life and our eternal hope on that. And we'd be foolish not to believe it. 
because we have a written history, reliable accounts from the eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And we have more than that too, and I'll get to that. Let's quickly follow the thread of Peter's sermon. His starting place is the response of the crowd to the Christians speaking in many languages by the Holy Spirit. And Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel and says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The final era of history would be the era of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God would be poured out with great equality on sons and daughters, on young men and old men, on male and female servants of the Lord. And when it happened, they would receive visions and dreams, they would prophesy, they would declare God's word. And this would be the signal that the winding down of history has begun. And Peter is saying, this has now happened. The outpouring of the Spirit on people signals the beginning of the period called in the Scripture the last days, a period that would culminate at the end of history in the day of the Lord. And we are now on the road to that day, Peter is saying. This idea of the sun turning black and the moon to blood is picked up in the book of Revelation as a sign that the final day of the Lord has come. But many of Peter's listeners would surely have remembered that at Jesus' crucifixion 52 days earlier, the sun had turned dark for three hours. So with the death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, the beginning of the end has come. The era of the Spirit has begun. And Peter ends his quotation of the prophet Joel with, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter includes that because the goal of his testimony is that his audience would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And 3,000 do, but that's later. So Peter begins by quoting Joel as an explanation of what they are seeing and hearing, that this is an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit as foretold by God through his prophet Joel. So that's Peter's starting place, and he's going to come back to that at the end. But now he leaves that, and he begins to tell his hearers about Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God demonstrated his affirmation of Jesus by miracles, and you all know it, Peter is saying. You saw them, for he did some of them among you. 
But in accordance with God's plan that Jesus would die on the cross, you had him killed by the hands of lawless men, men without the law, that is Gentiles, in this case Romans. But Peter goes on, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it, death. Peter declares the resurrection and then goes back to the Old Testament prophecy to set the resurrection in context. He quotes King David, the writer of Psalm 16. David said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you, God, will not abandon me to Hades, to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and will make me full of gladness with your presence. And the line of particular interest to Peter is this. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, God, you will not just let me rot in the grave. Now, who is the psalmist talking about? He says, I? Is he talking about himself? Well, clearly not. For Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day. He's still dead. We all know he's dead. So whose prophetic voice is it in this psalm then? Peter goes on. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to set one of his, that is one of David's descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Now understand that King David was revered by the Jews, not just as a great king, but by virtue of his writing so many of the Psalms, revered also as a prophet of God. And the Jews considered many of the Psalms to be messianic psalms, psalms either prophesying the events around the Messiah or spoken from the perspective of the Messiah. And so Peter then is saying, David, your great king and God's prophet speaks not of himself here, but of the Christ, Greek word, or Messiah, Hebrew word, speaking of his resurrection. Now, That's an argument of great weight and authority to the Jews who were listening to Peter. So the question is, who then is this Messiah, this Christ? And then Peter gives the linchpin statement of his whole address. This Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, remember, Jesus who was attested to you by God, as you well know, this Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses of it. We are all witnesses. Again, very significant statement. The scriptures had said that only the testimony of at least two witnesses could be accepted in a court of law. No person should be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Numbers 35, something similar in Deuteronomy 19. Two witnesses or three, never just one, at least two, gave legal validity to one's testimony. Two or three. Now Peter says, we, 120 of us, 
are witnesses that Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised from the dead. We have seen him, and we tell you he is alive. Now, that would have hit Peter's audience like a bombshell. They had to process the twin facts that Peter presented them with, that the king and prophet David prophesied that the Christ would be raised from the dead, and that there were 120 witnesses to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. What a loaded statement to these God-fearing Jews. The Christ, the Messiah, the one promised of God who would be prophet and priest and king, the one who would restore the covenant, the one who would rule with gentleness but absolute power and perfect righteousness, the one who would love God's people and set things right for God's people, who would ensure their future glory, this one in whom all the promises of God and all the hope of God's people would be fulfilled. It's Jesus whom you killed less than two months ago and whom God has raised to life to which the 120 of us are witnesses. That's a stunning declaration for Peter. And one that would have had huge weight, huge credibility with those who were listening. But Peter is not done yet. He continues, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Okay, now he's cycling back to his original quotation from Joel, that Jesus, not only raised from death, has been exalted to God's right hand and has poured out the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Lord who promised he would pour out his Spirit is the resurrected Jesus. And then Peter quotes David one more time. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but David himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. So David then, who testified earlier that the Christ would be raised from the dead, now testifies that someone greater than David would be exalted to God's right hand as Lord. And David, as a prophet, is speaking with God's authority on this. Now, we are witnesses, says Peter, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We also testify, ten days ago, that Jesus ascended to the heavens and has been exalted to God's right hand and now has poured out the Spirit of God on us. And that's what all this that you're seeing, all of this speaking in tongues, all of our declaring of the wonders of God, that's what all this is about. So Peter's sermon has been brief, clear, logical, perfectly suited to his Jewish audience. Again, the Lord God through his prophet Joel said he would pour out his Holy Spirit on people. The Lord said through his prophet King David that the Christ would not stay dead. We are witnesses that Jesus has been raised from death and we testify that Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit. That's his sermon, and he concludes, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucify. Jesus is Lord, exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus is Christ, Messiah, the prophesied Redeemer and Savior and ruler of God's people. This is and has always been the central 
affirmation of Christianity. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified, is risen from the dead. He is God's son. He is Lord. He is Christ, Savior, Redeemer. This is our faith. Why can we be confident of it? For the very same reasons to which Peter appealed, Jesus' resurrection prophesied in the Old Testament and witnessed to by the apostles in the New Testament demonstrates that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is the Christ. See, the Christian gospel is grounded in the prophecy of Scripture, prophecy of scripture fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection as witnessed to by his apostles. And for a number of reasons that we just don't have time to go into this morning, we trust the New Testament as a the New Testament record as an accurate, truthful account of the apostles' testimony and therefore as the historical certainty of Jesus' resurrection. And the ground of my Christian conviction is the scripture. The word of God. I believe that Jesus is Lord because God spoke of him in his word through the prophets of old and through the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Jesus really was crucified. He really did rise from the dead. Therefore, I am convinced that he really is the son of God, that he is Lord. And therefore, I can really trust what God's word says about being forgiven of my sins against God, being restored to right standing with God, even to the point of being adopted as God's beloved child for eternity. And insofar as my experience of God and Jesus lines up with what God's word has said to be true, then I trust my experience, but only then. So many of us make our experience the ground against which we measure God's word. And so we believe this, but discard that. I think it is safer, better, more appropriate, more secure to do the opposite. To measure our experience against the word of God. Because if I experience that God is distant... My experience is lying to me. If I experience that God is not good, my experience is lying to me. And I know that because God's word that I have, for many reasons, trust in, tells me different than my experience. And so Peter, on the basis of the Old Testament prophetic word and their own witness of the death and resurrection of Jesus, declares the lordship of Jesus. And when his audience hears all of this, they're cut to the heart and ask, what shall we do? Peter's response, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. In Acts 1, Jesus had commissioned his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so throughout the book of Acts, and we will see this as we go through this book, we see them doing exactly that. Sometimes, like Peter in this chapter, in chapters 3 and chapter 10, sometimes they're preaching to the crowd. 
Sometimes, like in chapters 4 and 5, they're defending themselves in a sentence or two to the religious authorities. But whenever they, whenever they bear witness, there are certain things that show up frequently. References to the Old Testament to indicate Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Reference to miraculous signs is evidence that God was in Jesus. Reference to the Holy Spirit. Reference to themselves as witnesses and so on. But there are three things that always show up. Even if they only have 30 seconds, the, the, some of you know what the elevator talk is, right? If you've got, you got one minute in an elevator with somebody, can you summarize what you believe? In their elevator talk, when they only had a moment, these three things would always show up. These three things are the core, the center of the Christian declaration. And when we call ourselves Christians, it means that we have grounded ourselves fundamentally in these three truths. Jesus died. Jesus rose again, and forgiveness of sins comes only through him. I don't know if you can read this or if the font is way too small, but Acts 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 13, whenever they are speaking, they talk about the crucifixion. Acts 2, you crucified and killed him. Acts 3, you killed the author of life. Acts 4, whom you crucified. Acts 5, whom you killed. Acts 10, they put him to death. Acts 13, asked Pilate to have him executed. Took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. They always say, Jesus of Nazareth died. They always say that. But they also always say, Acts 2, resurrection. God raised him up. This Jesus, God raised up. Chapter 3, whom God raised from the dead. Chapter 4, whom God raised from the dead. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. Um, Acts 5, verse 30, sorry. Acts 10, God raised him. Acts 13, God raised him. They always talk about that. And then they always talk about why it matters. Acts 2, forgiveness. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Chapter 3, repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. Acts 5, to give repentance and forgiveness to Israel. Acts 10, everyone who believes on his name receives forgiveness of sins. Acts 13, through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. There is so much that is a part of what it means to be a Christian. But the absolute core of it is that Jesus, who died, has been raised to life, and forgiveness is granted through him. Isaiah, 800 years before, said, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hebrews, Jesus appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus crucified. And Jesus, though crucified, was raised to life by the power of God and lives even now, lives and reigns eternally. Romans 1, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. 1 Peter 1, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then by virtue of his death and his resurrection, we experience and proclaim forgiveness of sins. Again, Romans, Jesus was delivered up to death for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 1, I read it earlier. God's beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Saved from the judgment of God for our sins. Saved from the futility of living life outside the context of God. The futility of life out from under his loving lordship. And to respond to this gospel of Jesus is to repent. It's to change directions. It means we reverse the direction of our life so that it is lived Godward under the lordship of Jesus. The Bible talks about this in terms of believing. To believe in Jesus means to acknowledge that I've sinned against God. It means to accept Jesus' death as the only adequate payment for my sins. He is my savior, we say. It means to accept his right to rule in my life by virtue of his deity. So we say he is my Lord. And then to begin a relationship of love and obedience to him by receiving his forgiveness and submitting to his lordship. Most of you have done that this morning, had the privilege of walking through with 14 people, some, some material around the gospel with respect to their baptism and their membership. Most of you know what it is to believe in Jesus. Most of you have that confidence that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And it's a confidence based on the word of God. We could trust it. But God gives us more. He does give us the experience. Peter said, you will receive the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit, which is the very person of God taking up residence in and surrounding us without. God's presence, our experience with him To respond to the gospel of Jesus, to acknowledge, to speak, to live our life as though Jesus is both Savior and Lord, is to be forgiven and made right with God and to have God himself take up residence. And his spirit in us bears witness with our spirit that what the scripture has testified to is true, that we are children of God. If you are here this morning and you think, you feel, you know that your sins separate you from God and you have never, you have never responded to the call of Jesus to follow him and to receive his forgiveness, you can do that. You can do that today by praying with conviction something like this. It's on the screen. You might even want to pray this right now. I'm sorry, God, I know that I've sinned against you. I acknowledge my guilt. I'm sorry for all that I have done wrong. Thank you for sending Jesus to earth to die for my sins. For I could not have made things right with you on my own. I accept his death as payment for my sins. So please forgive my sins. Please come now into my life by your spirit and help me to have a relationship with you my living, risen Jesus. Amen.
if you've, if you've prayed that or want to know more, um, come and see me when the service is done. I'll be here. I'm going to talk with the deacons for a few minutes, but I will stay put, and you can come and talk to me about that. If you did that years ago, let your heart well up in worship and adoration, awe of this one who is both Lord and Christ, and who has saved you and offered you forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we believe, and there's so many good reasons to believe. Part of me is thankful that you ask for this element of faith. Blessed are those who haven't seen but do believe. But Lord, you have granted the gift of faith. You've given us your holy word. You have borne it out that it has power and authority, that it is true and right. And so we believe in Lord Jesus Christ. We declare, affirm, love you as Lord and Christ. You are the center of our world, center of our lives, a firm foundation, a rock on which to stand. You ground us. You hold us secure. Because of you, our hope for eternity is a strong hope. And we bless you and are delighted to be your people. In your name we pray. Amen.